Radio Class Number One. Hey, it's us again. Welcome back. <laughs> Come on, Melina, get with the program. Embrace the dust. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Hey, it's us again. Welcome back. You probably didn't expect us to be back in your podcast feed so soon, but this is a special occasion only a couple of days left until the very grand opening of our new wafer fab in Dresden, in Germany. And to celebrate, we've produced a special two-part episode to share all about it. Last time, we basically talked about the hardware, the clean room. Where the semiconductor wafers are stored and transported. This is a special clean room in the clean room. And the super delicate silicon wafers, which are turned into microchips. For automotive, it's a must to have the highest quality. Zero defect. Otto Graf, the project leader for the Dresden Fab, told us all about it last time. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can do that real quick first. That way, this episode will make a whole lot more sense. Mm, yep. Today, we're going to talk about the software side of this fab, which, depending on who you ask, is probably as important as the hardware. That's because without the software, no production would be happening. Because... This fab is fully connected, fully data-driven. That means there are no machine operators in the Dresden factory. So that is fully automated manufacturing system. Everything in the fab is controlled by software and sensors, and the data which is generated by them. And by everything, I mean a whole lot of things, because making chips is complex. You have 700 process steps. If you have 700 process steps, and you need three months, roughly three months, through the whole production steps, then the product will be finished. If you will do manual steps between, you can have a lot of mistakes. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Also, it's super interesting to hear that it takes three months to make a chip. I learned something new here. Yeah, I, I also had no idea that it took that long. I guess just as we don't really think about how complicated it is to make a computer chip, we also just say, oh, you simply have to digitize it and it will be much better. But we should know that digitalization is a big effort. It is not as easy as it sounds. And I suppose digitizing every inch of a massive factory, each and every one of those 700 process steps, is a big effort as well. Yeah, it sure is. And Otto says that this fab has been digital really from its inception, from the very beginning. When they built it, they actually built it twice. Once in the real world, in Dresden and once in the virtual world. We have built up this construction with a 3D model, with a building information system, with BIM. BIM has a record of every hole that was drilled, each screw that was used, each pipe or wire, anything. This is what's commonly known as a digital twin. And if you have later changes in the fab for service or whatever, 
you have a digital documentation, it's much easier to handle it. Otherwise, you have tons of papers. And you must find the right paper, where's the right drawing, and if you have updates in the drawing and so on. Mm -hmm. If you have it digital, it's much easier to handle. Yeah. Yeah. And the digital twin has a number of other advantages too. If they bring in a new piece of equipment, they can plan everything down to the smallest detail before it even arrives, prepare all the connections and everything to cause as little disruption to the production process as possible. They could also easily build the exact same fab again, at least uh, relatively speaking, of course. But the biggest advantage is probably that it allows for very precise control over the production process itself. We can connect the data from the infrastructure directly with the process data. Mm, wait a second here. What does that mean exactly? Well, a simple example would be all of the consumption data. So, so how much water is used or uh, how high is the electricity consumption? Mm. All of this also goes into the digital twin. And so you can see if something out of the ordinary is happening that might lead to later on effects. Another example would be if a machine is already at maximum capacity, and then you would know that and know that you need to trigger the process for an expansion. Okay, got it. So this digital twin thing, this is getting better and better. Mm -hmm. Much better even compared to what I initially had to think of when hearing about it. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask, what did you think a digital twin was? <laughs> you know, there are these companies that try to make people immortal. They, they digitize you. <laughs> For example, they have your record, a bunch of mm -hmm. stories from your life, and then they create a virtual version of yourself. They synthesize your voice, and after <laughs> you die, yeah. your survivors can talk to your digital twin. There you have it. Uh, that, that sounds like bad <laughs> sci-fi TV. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's for me, personally, but, but it does remind me of how, uh, Melanie, remember we created those, those uh, voice avatars <laughs> a few episodes back? Yes. That was funny, <laughs> not not too <laughs> creepy. <laughs> but but anyway, so that there there are also companies that that are creating those uh, holograms of the deceased. Yes. Uh, so not only can you hear them speak, but you can see them too. Uh, I mean, that could maybe work in a, again. Go back to the museum setting mm -hmm. from the first part of the episode. Uh, you know, maybe they're they're animating some historical figure. And then you could, mm -hmm. I don't know, you could talk to Mark Twain or, I don't know, Goethe, pick your, yeah. pick your writer. Yeah, there are a few <laughs> museums that have started experimenting with this. Really? I wonder what the dinos that we met in the last episode would sound and look like to me. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> where, where are we? The, uh, the digital twin of our Dresden fab. Let's get back to that. Thank you for bringing us <laughs> back on track. I think one uh, important point of this that we really shouldn't forget is that, yes, the technology is important for sure, but it's really the people that are bringing it into existence and making it run in the first place. Yeah. Setting up a fab from scratch, I mean, that's been an enormous challenge for our project manager, Otto, here. But for him, interacting with the 1,500 people who were actually building it, that was really the important part. You need different types of people. For the more modern, new technologies, I've learned 
it's much easier to work with young people fresh from the university. But for the startup, the construction and everything to set up, you need very experienced people. And right now, I've learned I have to merge the teams together that the young people can learn from the senior people and the senior people can also learn from the young people with the new technologies. And if you can fit this very well together, then you are very, very powerful. And that is a great success story in our team that we have both experienced senior experts and also a lot of young people from the university joining us That's cool. Yeah. And and that means you, you now have people and roles at this new fab that haven't been in these environments for so long. Now, in most of our production facilities, actually, you commonly see these groups called TEF. Uh, and they're, they're technical specialists who are really there for the local production technology. And these folks are really often the ones that, you know, you would call it, you'd say they're, they're keeping the lights on <laughs> for a nice little English idiom there. Mm. Um But now that now that the focus in in the production environments is expanding and really embracing new software, super sensitive sensors, and the data that's getting produced in that environment, that traditional role is really rapidly expanding. And even new roles are coming into the plant environment, which before were typically used more in the purely digital business type of environments. Data scientist finds trends in data. Data engineer develops strategies based on data. Data analyst processes and analyzes data. Data architect defines technology requirements and data standards. System architect designs technical infrastructure. Software architect plans IT applications. Software engineer designs develops and maintains software. Software integration engineer defines processes and ensures compatibility. Solution architect. And now it's Enrico. Well, solution means it's more related to the uh, business and business logic. And uh, the architect here means that I'm responsible for all the integration parts and the communication between the software components. This is Enrico Neuber. And he's one of the many people who are on the software and data side at the Dresden Fab. He's been here since the beginning. This is Greenfield Project, so there was nothing. So we came there, hmm. we met, and we got the job to build everything. One big task for him and his team was to decide which software the plant should run on. And we're not talking about just one piece of software, but many different software components that at the end have to be able to exchange data with each other. Because it's very complex, you have 10 or 20 or 30 applications that need to uh, well communicate to each other. And it's just not those applications. But when the fab is in full production, Enrico thinks that they'll have a total of 160 software components. And they all have to be in sync with each other. Use the same language, if you will. Mm, so some sort of standard, right? Mm -hmm. Not like these silos that so many software programs are. Data that you feed into one software can't be read by another. Here's a simple example from Enrico's work. We have a lot. A lot has 25 wafers. And a lot is a lot. And the lot idea should be the same everywhere that's used. But the manufacturer one calls it LID, for example. The other 
lot idea. The third idea. So we have three words or keys for the same thing mm -hmm. out of three data sources. And when we propagate the data into our data sync, we fix this. <laughs> we translate it to one single key. And this key is unique and consistent overall. Oh, that sounds complicated. Consistency is key. Yeah. That's what they say. And, and what's interesting is that Enrico also has to do a very similar kind of translation work within the team. Enrico is managing people from all different areas of expertise that are coming from different domains, as he calls it. Ah, yeah. We just heard all the fancy-sounding job descriptions. Right. And each of them has a slightly different terminology. My role as the architect, so like, I would say, orchestrating the domains, you should be aware of the sometimes different uh, terms or wordings and be able to translate between the domains. Does anyone know what I'm doing wrong? I'm not getting my WSL through the proxy. And I can tell you from experience that there's a lot of slang in the IT world that needs translation. Mm, I bet. The function is covered in the IBS SLP1. Mm, yep, right. In the mm -hmm. call from the EAP to the MES EAP uh -huh. request shop prep. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, nice sure. example, thanks <laughs> to our producers. Um, but this is the kind of uh, problem that Enrico is running to every day with communication. <laughs> Listening to him uh, reminded me or made me realize again that, that he's really looking at the fab in total in a very different way. Mm -hmm. So far, we considered the clean room at the heart of the factory. This production floor, tinted yellow by the light, with the wafers traveling underneath the ceiling from one machine to the next. But when you ask Enrico, he says something else is really at the center of the fab, and that's data. Well, when we started, we said we want to follow the data-centric manifesto. And one aspect is to um, gather all the data and store in a, well, central manner. And the other is that we have a strong data governance. And the strong data governance means, well, we have a consistency over the data and understood and well-defined terminology, a data catalog, a maintained one, and data clearance, so to say. Hmm, data clearance. Which means that they have to ensure that the data is clean as well. In a way, he's also keeping the dust out. <laughs> that, that's a nice parallel. I like that. <laughs> um, and I can't overemphasize the importance of clean data because they, they're not only using that to monitor the production and control it based on that data, so it's, it, it leads to decisions, but they also want it to understand the processes themselves better. They want to learn from the data which they're collecting. So as we are able to have tiny little sensors we can place everywhere, we can measure the, the physical world. And this data we can then take to analyze and see, well, maybe a new sensor in a specific spot was able to tell me a little bit more. And I understand the physical process in a better, more detailed way. And I can take this to detect anomalies faster than I was able before. Aha, uh -huh. so here we have AIoT entering the picture. Mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence 
on data collected by Internet of Things devices. That's absolutely right. And which makes a lot of sense because the idea is to optimize and automate. Yeah. They collect all this data, not just for the monitoring, not just for the sake of seeing this, but to get ever better results. And of course, by that increased efficiency as well. While the production itself is already fully automated and, I have to say, quite efficient, they're now working on effectively automating quality control itself. In the metrology or quality control step, sometimes we take pictures. In the defect measurement, we have equipment that's making picture of the process step. And what we know, it's currently on smartphones, etc., that an artificial intelligence can analyze pictures very fast and make a decision on it. And this is also where we want to enable artificial intelligence for our defect measurements to analyze the pictures. That is the result of this metrology step and to make a very fast decision if the process step was good or not. Oh, that is fascinating. Mm -hmm. But for a second, let's assume that something is not perfect. Some process actually doesn't go as planned. What, what happens then? I mean, how do they make changes? Well, for Enrico, that, that basically means that he needs to make the system look at even more data to prevent the same error from happening again. And then it's good to have data that was taken when this bad process happened. And then you can understand, oh, probably, well, I would have been able to see it if I would have taken this uh, data point into my uh, control loop or into my uh, observation. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly happening. Right. Driven out of, well, something uh, bad happened, an outage, or I okay. needed to scrap my product. And then you build your control loop mm -hmm. to let the system to... Self-healing, we call it, to fix it by themselves. And if this is not possible to at least cause an alarm, that somebody is looking into it. And, and by the way, changing something in the software itself is, is rather a big deal also. The fab is running 24-7. So you can't just stop everything. You can't just mm -hmm. halt the production line and make an update. And, and worst case, I mean, you might even introduce a software bug mm -hmm. that gets to pop up on you in the future. But now, when I picture that there is this factory that basically runs itself around the clock seven days a week, it turns wafers into chips without any human doing anything. It even identifies and corrects problems with the help of AI. How do people like that, though? <laughs> I, I imagine handing over production to a software system is a big step. Mm -hmm. You need to have a lot of trust in that software to put your brand new factory in its hands, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely I do. Uh, but, you know, maybe it's like that first drive in a self-driving car. Hmm. And you trust it that it will drive you safely. At least, I hope, in the near future. Yeah. That's true. That's also what I am seeing. So they want to have it verified by data, by reports, to look into the automation and to say, yeah, well, it's really doing what they should do. So it's another aspect that the software system should come up with matrix, with reports, uh, with a kind of monitoring that the human can judge, yeah, it's working valid or no, we need to fix it. And as we all know, no software is perfect. So Enrico and all the other data and software people will have more than enough work at making the processes even better, increasing the quality of the chips even further. 
And in the end, it's always coming back to the people who are executing control over the AI. And then technological development continues also. And if you look around, the technology is also evolving very fast. So probably in five to ten years, I need to deal with technology I not able to imagine as of now. <laughs> yeah. But if there is new technology I need to evaluate, I need to decide, can I use it into my world and how to integrate and how to replace the things that are running. So you probably know for people that have something running, it's difficult to replace it or to uh, deal with complete radical new ideas. And this is what I would see for my future to, well, understand the radical ideas in technology and to assess how this can be used in my tiny uh, semiconductor world <laughs> to, well, be better or to, well, be more efficient, something like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And, and Otto, who we met earlier, absolutely agrees with Enrico. The fab must be also, in 10, 15 years, one of the modernst fab worldwide. And that is the goal for us. Okay, wow. The most modern fab worldwide. That's quite ambitious in this fast-moving tech world. Yeah. I have to say, we have a, we have a wow here. Wow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And go ahead and mark your calendar. Ten years from now, that'll be our 125th episode or so, I guess, <laughs> right? We should, uh, we should make a plan, Melina, to revisit the Dresden Club. I'm totally up for it. <laughs> but for today, uh, and with our previous episode, I think we can probably probably wrap it up here. What what have we learned about this fab so far? Mm, I've learned that you can only enter it wearing special protective gear because the wafers are debas. <laughs> That's <Dust>. right. <laughs> uh, I learned, and I still am kind of shocked by this that it's that it's taking literally takes months for the process to go start to finish. From know how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. And I promise there will be even more wow things to come, because, well, as mentioned, the very grand opening of our Dresden Fab is only a couple of days away. Uh, stay tuned for more on, well, on Monday, June 7th. That's when the grand opening will take place. Um, we'll share some more information in our show notes. Share this episode with your friends. And, yeah. See you again next time. And for my side, I'll be joining the grand opening virtually online. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. So until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.